Well, I want to talk about the Psalms just a little more uh, today, beginning with the question, why are the Psalms such an important and regular part of our worship? Um, and I've already explained it to a degree, but as they did for Israel, the Psalms have this ancient ability to normalize three important postures for the people of God, the postures in our relationship to God. And what are they? Honesty, dependence, right? Help, and worship. The right orientation toward God and His holiness. Honesty, dependence, and worship in the midst of the ups and downs of life as it really is. As we await this full and this final redemption of the world. The Psalms have been training God's people in this kind of prayer life really since at least the southern kingdom of Judah in the 9th century B.C. They've been the prayer book of the people. They've been sung and said in the temple, in the synagogue, and in the church for almost 3,000 years. We don't just say them, we participate in them. Human as we are and human as the Psalms really are and are meant to be. They tell a story and they invite us into that story. So when Thomas Cranmer, who uh, compiled the first book of Common Prayer, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, he made the Psalms like, you might even say like a spinal column for the rest of what's included in that book of Common Prayer, with the Eucharist at its heart. There's a psalm appointed in every service, whether sung or said. There's a full psalter in the book for every church member to learn. And for the daily office, uh, for morning prayer and midday prayer and evening prayer, a 30-day cycle through the psalms is there. There are 150 psalms for us to go through in those 30 days. So our psalm today, Psalm 13, it moves us through these three prayer postures in just six short verses. It's, uh, I love to talk about the Psalms in particular when we get to Psalm 13. What are these postures? Honesty. What does it say? How long? Over and over. How long? And have you forgotten me? This is too hard. So often we hear that refrain in the Psalms. How long? So there's, there is a deep honesty there. And then there's dependence. A recognition of dependence. Consider me. Answer me. Light up my eyes. Help. And then worship. Through all of that, through that honesty, through that dependence and weakness, it says, but I will trust. I will rejoice. I will sing because you are good. The Psalms uh, we are often categorized into five or so different types that are sprinkled through five distinct books of Psalms. But I think these three postures are the main thread of this, this tapestry, so to speak. So let's just talk about honesty with God first. Let me give you a quick story. I had a, a, a close family member who went through a significant betrayal that led to a, a bankruptcy, led to losing everything. And he would sit in his recliner with a large King James Bible covering his lap, pouring over the Psalms. And with a highlighter, he would color all the passages all the ones that cry out for a searing and merciless confrontation with enemies. Sometimes he would mark them so aggressively that you could hear the highlighter squeak or the page rustle. He had found in the Psalms this outcry that matched his own in what we call the imprecatory Psalms, the ones that curse enemies, the ones that long for justice and vengeance because he wanted a God with a scorched earth policy. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been wronged like that, and those are the honest prayers of your heart. 
You want justice. Maybe you're there right now. These imprecatory psalms, these bitter laments, they're just plain honesty, unvarnished. And it's poetic emotion that doesn't necessarily uh, understand God's heart or it doesn't accurately capture God's character, but it's honest. And that's not, you know, it's not the point to represent God in that, those moments, but to rep- represent humanity and this honesty to which we're called. Eugene Peterson once said this about the Psalms. He said, the poets drag us in the, into the depth of reality itself. Far from being cosmetic language, it's intestinal. It's intestinal. The Psalms spill our guts to God and invite us to do that. If we're honest, we do often hate our enemies. Maybe just low-key, but we'd rather they not exist. We do feel like God has abandoned us. We're angry. We're lonely. We're hungry. We're sick and we're tired. The injustice is too rampant. The injustice is too enduring. Hot lead moves through our veins. It does mine sometimes. And this is life. In their honesty, the Psalms often capture this uncensored moral and emotional MRI of the human heart trying to navigate the world as it really is, not just as we want it to be or think it should be, but as it really is. What? It's hard. It's unpredictable. It's unfair. It's even devastating. And so the Psalms acknowledge this, the fear and the pain and the temporal circumstances that, that flow out of all of these things, including enemies who can just steal every ounce of our attention and energy, and sometimes they are our family members. Sometimes they're the kid that you ride the school bus with. When I was in sixth grade, there was a kid named Warren Barnhill. And he was a bully with a greasy black mop of hair. I think he had started puberty in the fourth grade because he was a whole head taller than the rest of us. And he had man hands. Have you ever read the Calvin and Hobbes series? And you remember Mo? This kid, Warren, was Mo from Calvin and Hobbes. He was that kid. He even looked like him. And Warren would insult and humiliate and randomly choose violence. Just punch you. For a stretch of time, I thought about Warren every school night. Every school night. Lying in my bed, pondering all the potential bad things that might happen to him overnight. I would even devise my own imprecatory strategies for how to make his life miserable. As he tried to make ours. While also just somehow figuring out how to avoid being clubbed by those man hands. I was strategizing. I was thinking about him. It felt like he consumed me and others. And though it's a little bit of a silly story, that's what our enemies can do. And that's what the Psalms are talking about. Because our obstacles even, maybe not our enemies, but our obstacles become the center of our attention and they, they, become, they take every ounce of our energy at times. The feeling is all too real for us as adults, navigating people or navigating circumstances that leave us crying out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? So that's the first posture is honesty, and the second is dependence, help, weakness, need. Generally speaking, our prayers are often about asking God for something, so it might seem like we're pretty good at asking for help at you know, this, this particular part. But if we're really honest, we so often don't admit our need or our weakness in prayer until we've exhausted all our other resources or efforts. 
until we're at the end of ourselves. And then we often turn to the Lord as a last resort. And of course, he's used to this. Israel had this problem. And we see it played over and over again. And it is out of this cycle in many ways that it was lived personally by David, but also by Israel that we get at the Psalms. What's the life cycle of Israel's faith? It went something like this. Salvation and rescue. Then gratitude and worship. And then blessing and great prosperity. And then forgetfulness and apostasy. Then judgment and consequences. Finally, what? Help. Repentance and outcry. And then God would intervene every time. Every time. And it seems every time they experienced blessing, they took God for granted. They confused this blessing, and here's the thing, with their own strength. I don't know how that happens, but when things are going well, for the most part, we tend to think it's because we've done it. They confuse this blessing with their own strength and their own goodness and their own knowledge and their own capability. They didn't want or need God. They had things handled, things figured out. Until what? Until they didn't. In the 5th century, there was a Roman woman named Anicia Proba. She was nobility. Uh, She knew St. Augustine of Hippo. She knew St. John Chrysostom, who that's the greatest theologian and the greatest preacher of the first millennium. Uh, respectively. She knew them both. And one day, Anicia wrote Augustine because she was afraid that she wasn't praying as she should. And Augustine wrote her two letters. Uh, We call one letter, letter 130, because he wrote a lot of letters. He wrote back to her saying, before you know what to pray or how to pray, you must account yourself desolate in the world. However great your prosperity, the prosperity of your lot may be. So he was calling her to recognize that the posture of prayer that she wanted and needed would have to come on the other side of realizing that all the prosperity she had, her lot in life as, a, as nobility, was nothing. This was a main theme of Augustine's teaching. We must see that things are out of order, that our hearts are disordered. We love the good things too much and better things too little until we've recognized that we really are desolate and in need, that, that we love and we rely on other things far more than God, our prayers will be more like, and I forget who said this, forgive me, but they'll be more like worrying in God's direction. You ever done that? The Psalms put reality in front of us all the time, even when we may not be personally relating to these particular circumstances that are in the Psalms. The Psalms challenge us to continually remember humanity's need of God, our shared desolation without Him, and not just when we're wrung out personally. It's why we say them together, because you might be fine this morning, but someone else may not. You may feel like you have no enemies today, but someone else in here is struggling to get past their enemies and their obstacles. The Psalms challenge us to seek out our answer from the Lord together on whom we and all humanity actually depend. And in this way, friends, we may forget this, but the church exists in the world to intercede for all of humanity, to cry out for humanity. How long, O Lord? We're interceding for the world. And that's our, our central purpose in the world. Our witness in the world. It's why we suffer too. We suffer with the world and sometimes for the world as Christ leads us. So honesty, dependence, and worship. 
This is where we need to get serious about what the Psalms really are and can be in shaping us for a posture of worship. How they can and should reorient us to God. The Psalms are where life as we know it, in all its grit and its gore and even its glory, all of that is gathered up and it's brought to the Lord in prayer as a call and response, one soul to another. That's why we have it in a call and response format in, the, you know, in our Sunday mornings. Because it's the call of humanity to God. It's the right posture toward God who can help. You think about David, who was a deeply flawed man, but we remember him as having a heart after God, as a king who genuinely wanted to please God, but who kept falling into the same traps that we do. David wrote at least 73 uh, of the psalms that we have uh, identifiable authors for, including today's Psalm 13. He probably wrote some of the remaining 50 anonymous ones, as did ancient Israel, We believe that David's relationship with God was actually like a meeting place. It was like a mediation, a place where God was divinely inspiring this man and others with a way in which to cry out to God, inspiring him in the outcry of his soul, which comes to echo through time and space. We have a language. We have an orientation to God both in the outcry and in the worship. Even the 13 Psalms that... um, David wrote about specific instances in his kingship. They became the shared story of the people, the shared celebration, but they were also a common outcry of pain and longing and repentance. And David's desire for violence that shows up all the time in the Psalms, it eventually disqualified him from building God's temple. So even as we we resonate with the outcry for justice against enemies, we recognize that God must do something in us with this outcry and with our hatred for our enemies. And he does do something. But that violence is continually redirected to trust in God in the Psalms, often through the valley of repentance. So what I'm telling you is that that God uniquely inspired the Psalms that we might be able to resonate with them. Like every artist who puts brush to canvas or lyrics to a melody, the author's author's hearts were turned inside out for others to see and for them to hear. Their exposure becomes engagement with God through what? An unvarnished human reality which God confirms. It's hard. It's this reality of suffering. And the truth is weighty. So the Psalms are prophetic. As David and others in the Psalms cry out, the Spirit of God is doing what? Revealing the Messiah who will also suffer. In Psalms 22 in particular and 69. The Messiah who will be a true priest in Psalm 110, who will ultimately vanquish their true enemies. Through these poems and songs, the proclamation of God's faithfulness and of Israel's need, they become this prophetic birthplace. More than just an expression, you begin to see God revealing something through the Psalms such that they're this prophetic birthplace for the Messiah in the imagination of God's people, the one who would deal with it all. When God's people chanted or they sang them together, it was meant to be more than the performance of a choir, more than beautiful, more than poetic. It was communion with one another and with the God who sees and knows. It was communion even with the future. 
I suppose we don't often experience them that way. Um, fragmented and isolated as we are from one another, from history, even from hope in the future because everything in many ways is amazing for us right now, or so we might think. The closest modern analogy I can give you to how these psalms resonated for God's people is that of the black church, whose spirituals and whose worship culture are nearly indivisible from their shared story of suffering and injustice. It's a prophetic witness to us of how injustice calls a people to cry out to God and to remain through, through great suffering and great injustices, some of the worst the world can produce, and yet for their faith to be great and rich and hopeful. This is how the Psalms functioned for the Israelites in the early church, whose mutuality was much more tangible for them than for us. But this is the aim of the Psalms. It's meant to unify As intimate as they are, they are not primarily just poetic fodder for personal devotion either. They're certainly good for personal devotion. They're also not more textual, theological, or historic data to be studied and systematized. The Psalms are painfully honest, prophetically wise, and they are poetically worshipful songs of lament, praise, celebration, wisdom, and pilgrimage meant for a renewed people to participate in together, for you and for me. Together, because of the end for which the Psalms ultimately look, the Messiah to whom they point, who would overthrow the true enemies of all humanity, the Psalms invite us into this story in particular and the one they're telling about the one who came just in time. For while we were still weak, says Paul to the Romans, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Taking upon his own body the futility of violence as an answer to anything. And he became an embodied psalm, didn't he? Weak and dependent on the Father. Jesus became our song of suffering and our cry for rescue. You remember Jesus' final words on the cross. In Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross with his battered head raised and blood-filled mouth opened and his lungs struggling to function one last time, what did Jesus do? He sang Psalm 22. But his body through death and the grave sang more than the first Stanza. Listen to it. Why are you so far from me, from saving me, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. The Gospels say Jesus cried out one final time and died. And they say he was seen and heard and raised in the love of the Father. 
and the power of the Holy Spirit. And every broken heart, every abused body, every abandoned and betrayed soul, and all those who suffer under empires and bad religion, crying out for rescue, singing out the Psalms, are delivered in the embodied Psalm of Jesus. When he could only get out the first line. There's a chance that you were taught that on the cross, Jesus merely became the sinful scorn of a disgusted father. And that is not, that does not capture it. Maybe just that he was rejected and abandoned by him. And it doesn't fully make sense of the cross. It doesn't make sense of the psalm that begins on Jesus' lips. Because in that exchange, Father and Son are together responding to the outcry of all humanity in her exile and isolation. Jesus is crying out for all of humanity, becoming our voice in his own suffering for sin. Why have you forsaken me? And how does the Father answer? I'm here. The Father's response to the Son's willing obedience to his devastated body and to his shameful execution was to receive him. And to vindicate him from his now amazed and disproven murderers. In the Father's response, in that moment, Matthew tells us the veil of the temple is torn. And the way is finally open for his people again. For you and for me. For all humanity who will come in our honesty. And in our weakness and our worship. Every scorching prayer for the destruction of enemies was met. In the forgiveness Jesus extended to the murderous crowd. To the soldiers, to the Pharisees. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And 1 Peter 2 says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the cross, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So I want you to see that Jesus fulfilled the outcry of the Psalms for us. And when we say the Psalms, we are pronouncing that all evil and all, every enemy and all obstacles and all suffering is met in Jesus for our healing, for our hope in the world as it really is. In Jesus, the truly honest and deeply painful truth about the world was exposed. In Jesus, the ultimate trust was expressed. And in Jesus, perfect worship, perfect love was performed. Friends, this is what it means to know Jesus, to receive him, to follow him. It means finding our lives in his life, finding our lives in a kind of death with his death, finding our hope in the resurrection, finding our suffering in his suffering, our trust in his trust, our righteousness in his obedience, and our worship in his triumph. And it means making sense of reality and the honesty of the Psalms can be honest with God. It means following that prayerful path through our ups and downs to the only one who holds all reality, whatever your reality is, in his hands. Do you believe it? Lord, help us. Help us to believe it. And help us to see Jesus, the embodied psalm, the fulfillment of Psalm 22, and the hope that we have for humanity's reconciliation with you, that is what we hope for, and that's what we live toward. Help us to do that all the more, even as Peter prayed, that we would. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.